0: Tackle Talk, the men's health podcast. Three guys tackling all things men's health, head on.
1: Today, we're talking about vasectomies and I'm joined by Trent Barrett, who's another urologist. Hi, Trent.
2: G'day, Andrew. How are you going? Good, mate. I'm better after this coffee you've made.
1: Yeah, it's nice coffee, isn't it? What beans are you using? Those are the Fat Puppy Beans by Leftfield. If you're out there and you want to sponsor this show, just get in touch. That's Perth, is it? Yeah, it is. Yeah. Great. Perth, Western Australia. I approve. We're getting up there in the coffee stakes, I think. We're um, almost as good as Melbourne.
2: <laughs> we like to think so. <laughs>
1: <laughs> they might disagree. So um, talking about vasectomies, I was reading the other day that it's one of the most popular
2: surgical procedures in Australia. There's something like 30,000 done each year. Extremely common and uh, you know, becoming more so across the world. In, in the USA, there's new legislation which uh, makes it appealing not to have an unplanned pregnancy.
1: Yeah, and guys are taking more responsibility for fertility or control of fertility, not just leaving it up to the ladies. It's a positive change. Yeah, so what is the typical guy who would sort of come to you requesting a vasectomy?
2: Look, there's quite a wide range of guys who, um, who want a vasectomy, but the typical patient would be a man in his late 30s who has completed his family and either he or his wife or partner doesn't want to be on reversible contraception.
1: Yeah. So, what are some of the problems with reversible contraception, like condoms, for example? I mean, we all know they can break, they can slip off, or you know, there's there must be a fairly high failure rate with condoms.
2: If you read the fine print on the packaging, it's scary. It's about a three percent failure rate, and and some of that's to do with usage and you know user error. A lot of the problems with condoms are to do with the user experience. You know, people don't like to use them; that they ruin the spontaneity, and uh, you know, long term, it's an uncommon choice for people to make.
1: Yeah, but certainly very important from an STI point of view um, for sexual health. But if you're in a committed relationship and you don't want to use condoms, that leaves other options which might be female-based, such as the female contraceptive pill that's been around for a long period of time. But there can be problems with that as well, can't there?
2: Well, I think typically we've leaned quite heavily upon uh, the female role in contraception, like you were saying. And all, all female reversible contraception relies on, on some sort of hormonal mechanism. So, you know, there are problems with this, not only in terms of the failure rates, which are higher than any surgical intervention, but also to do with the experience for the woman um, in the sense that there's side effects, you know, all hormones carry some sort of risk and side effect, even though it might be low, usually well tolerated, you know, mood changes, weight gain, things like that, not always preferable.
1: Yeah, I think all women out there are probably well versed in the side effects of Contraceptions and that they can be fairly mild or they can be quite significant and potentially life threatening. For example, with uh, clots in the legs or, you know, causing potential thromboembolism. And in some women, they just have been told by their doctors, you should not be taking oral contraception. It's true, but probably the majority just don't like whatever side effects they're getting. So, in terms of permanent contraception, vasectomy is. The best in terms of success rate, but it's certainly a lot easier to perform than perhaps compared to the permanent contraception option for a woman, isn't it?
2: Well, look, there's two benefits to vasectomy um, as compared to uh, the option for the female partner, which is tubal ligation or tying the fallopian tubes. One is that the success rates are much higher. There's about a tenfold higher success rate in terms of preventing long-term failure with a vasectomy. And also the, the organs we're operating on, the vas deferens, which is the tube that carries the sperm from the testicle up towards the ejaculation ducts, is easily accessible through the scrotal skin. There's about a millimeter of scrotal skin between the world and that tube. So it's much less risky than an intraabdominal surgery, which would be required to get to the tubes in the female.
1: Yeah, it's a much bigger deal for a woman. So in terms of talking to patients about a vasectomy, because it's a permanent contraception, what sort of things do you go through with them? Obviously, you want to check if they've completed their family and they don't want
2: any more children gee it's it's a long discussion in terms of counseling a patient um and their partner about the the vasectomy but uh the first thing i'm looking for really is their motivation for it and i'm trying to identify any red flags that could lead them to regret their decision because i'd hate to be responsible for someone regretting their decision
1: yeah absolutely so what are some of those red flags you're looking for
2: well, you know, typically, like we said, the man is as in his later 30s, has completed his family. Sometimes that happens earlier or later, depending. But um, so certainly a very young man um, or a very young female partner or someone with very young children probably has more risk of regret than someone who has, a, has had more time to think about their family planning and satisfy themselves that it's concluded.
1: Yeah. How often do you get a guy coming in who he and his partner have just had a newborn baby and... It might be their third or fourth child and or even their second child and he's really stressed out because they're not getting any sleep and he and his wife are thinking, boy, we really don't want any more children. Is that a good state of mind to make that decision in?
2: Look, I tell those guys that no men want another child when they have a screaming infant in the house, right? It's reasonable. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, maybe let that cool off for a bit, let the child grow up a little bit, let things settle down and then make a decision which is permanent. And in the short term, you know, those reversible options that we spoke about, they're, they're reasonable.
1: Yeah. Okay. So what else are you interested in when you're talking to a male who's coming and requesting a vasectomy?
2: Well, look, sometimes the conversation can deviate when, when, I, when I meet somebody who doesn't have any children and wants a vasectomy. I think, you know, I can, I can respect where they're coming from and I can understand where they're coming from in a lot of cases, but it requires a little bit of extra counseling. I'm looking at their medical risks to make sure that a surgery is a good idea for them. Um, looking at their anatomy to make sure that the, the surgery can be achieved safely. And I'm looking at their expectations and making sure they understand that vasectomy has limitations. It's not perfect. Although it's the best thing we've got, short of you know buying a new house with two separate bedrooms, it's um, you know the lowest possible failure rate for a type of contraception. So they need to understand that there is a risk of long-term failure, although it is very small.
1: Yeah, so once they've, um, you've examined them and you – what are you looking for with the examination, by the way?
2: Well, look, men have testicles that sit in all different positions. Some hang low, some high up, some jump around. You know, you want to establish that they're going to have a vas that's easily accessible without testicular retraction or spasm or trouble during the operation. This is more of a problem when someone's having the operation awake. If they're having the operation asleep, it, it sort of counteracts a lot of these problems in that the body's relaxed, the vas is relaxed, and it's much easier to access. But um, you know, certainly if someone wants the operation awake, this plays a big
1: part. Have you ever come across a situation where you couldn't feel the vas?
2: Look, it's very rare, but I have Um, the sort of things which are rare. But well, but I'm looking out for are you know the testicular health. There's been a case where I've diagnosed a testicular cancer on a routine vasectomy examination, and um, as you alluded to, congenital absence of the vas, which means you're born without a vas on either one or both sides. You're missing one. Well, you know we can we can explain that. If they're missing both, it's a difficult discussion in terms of their previous family.
1: Yeah, and it's a good uh, opportunity for just a general male genital, urinary health checkup at the same time. So you've established that they've got the right motivations to have a vasectomy, that it's going to be fairly straightforward from an anatomical point of view. What are the options in terms of actually proceeding? You talked a bit about having it under a general anaesthetic or under local anaesthetic. What, what are the pros and cons of each?
2: Well, here's the thing. I mean, the operation is exactly the same regardless. So personally, I don't really have a strong preference as to which is better in terms of the surgical outcomes, although in some people who have a very retractile scrotum um, or who have any anatomical problem with the scrotum, like previous scarring from other surgeries or injuries, a general anesthetic is much better. So those people are strongly encouraged to be asleep. In, in, the, in the rest of the population, you know, it's really a preference about what sort of experience you, you're gunning for with your vasectomy. You know, being awake, the biggest problem is that you've got to have local anesthetic injections to numb the testicles while you're awake. And having needles in the groin or near the near the genitals is um, is confronting and a lot of people don't tolerate it that well. So, you know, that's the biggest problem with a, a local anesthetic procedure that I can see and it's really hard to pick sometimes the people who are going to have problems. You know, people come in showing a very brave face and it's sometimes these guys who are really, really outwardly brave and uh, pushing strongly for a local anesthetic procedure who then have a problem on the day where they don't tolerate it and there's a risk they may faint or have pain during the operation or other complications which I just you know want to avoid.
1: Yeah I mean I can speak from personal experience having had a vasectomy and I opted to have it under local anesthetic because I didn't really want a general anesthetic interfering with my busy day but I I must admit that as the needle was approaching um, my genital area (laughs) uh, I did have a bit of regret and think maybe I should have gone for the general anesthetic but it was just momentary discomfort if anybody's had a local anesthetic injection you know there's a bit of a sting and then it goes numb fairly quickly and my surgeon shout out to Rob Davies who's an excellent vasectomist Did a really good job with the local anesthetic and I just watched TV while he did it. I will say that if you have it under local anesthetic, you might smell your skin or tissue burning as they use diathermy to control the bleeding, which was a little bit confronting, even for me as a surgeon. Gosh. But what it did allow me to do was just get up and and walk out straight away. But on the downside, I didn't receive any sympathy from my wife because I got a call as soon as I was walking out of the clinic and she just said, how did it go? Yeah, that was fine. She said, okay, well, can you go and pick up the kids from school, go and get this from the shops on the way home, blah, blah, blah. And while I was waddling down the street, slightly uncomfortable with a numb feeling.
2: Now, you need a bit of sympathy for sure. You know, I really try and impress upon patients. They mustn't under under sort of play this procedure. It is an operation it is a surgery on your genitals, and there are small risks of complications. And all those risks are higher in someone who, you know, does something the same day and, and walks too much or does physical activity. So I think it's the it's a delicate surgery that's best done correctly once. And you don't want complications in that area. You don't want pain in that area. You want everything to go as smoothly as possible. So when talking to people about their anesthetic choice. I'm really happy to give them a general anaesthetic. I think they are then guaranteed to tolerate the procedure well. There's no variables. There's no variables from the surgery um, from my point of view because their testicles are going to be relaxed and accessible. And I just see people tolerating it really well. It's like flying to Europe. You know, you can choose to fly business class and have a nap and you wake up when you get there or you can sit down with the luggage in the uh, in the luggage compartment and bounce around for, for the period. Yeah, nice if you can afford it these days. <laughs> um, yeah, look, I think
1: the thing about general anaesthetic, you're going to put a lot of local anaesthetic in there afterwards. They're super comfortable
2: after the procedure. With general anaesthetic, I can look them in the eye and say, look, you're not going to be anxious, you're not going to have pain, you're going to wake up feeling really good, you're going to go home feeling really good, and then you'll have the onset of some discomfort maybe 10 to 12 hours later, and you know, you just got to limit your activity and not run into trouble after that. Yeah,
1: I mean, and let's face it, most guys are pretty anxious about this procedure. It carries a lot of anxiety, that you're going and touching their, their manhood or their nether regions and um, the less anxiety that can be brought on by the actual procedure, the better, the more relaxed they feel. And they're often relieved by the fact that you're going to do it under general anaesthetic. So what do you tell them in terms of post-operative recovery? What, what's your advice on what they should or should or shouldn't be doing in the hours and the days after the operation?
2: Well, like I I hinted at, I think they should really take it easy because you you can prevent problems, but it's very hard once you have a problem to unwind that and and sort of forget that experience. So taking it easy in the first couple of days after the surgery is, is a must. So picking the kids up from school, not a good idea. I tell people to go home, take it easy, walk from the couch to the TV, you know, to the fridge and back, but not too much more than that if they can avoid it. It's a, it's a trap, particularly in the first 12 hours when that local anaesthetic is still working. People feel you know, close to 100% fine and they're then tricked into doing too much and, and you pay for it the next day and the day after that.
1: Yeah, I felt great afterwards. But yeah, once the local anaesthetic wears off, you do feel a bit uncomfortable. I found the hardest thing was getting in and out of a chair or getting in and out of the car. And so you really just have to listen to your body and, and take it easy until... Uh, probably about four or five days after the procedure, starting to feel a bit more normal again. But this is assuming everything goes according to plan because, you know, potentially complications can occur. Um, What are those complications? What do
2: you warn people about? So, look, the risk of complications is really low. But this is taking a population of patients who I speak to about it really carefully and tell them to avoid doing too much too soon. So in my hands, the risk of bleeding, which is the most common complication probably after a vasectomy, is less than one in 500 most people might have a little spot of blood perhaps on the dressing and maybe some small bruising around the um, the access point on the scrotum, but they shouldn't have much more than that. But like I said, this is people who are who advised to take it easy for a couple of days and avoid physical activity for about a week. Just in terms of that bleeding or bruising or
1: swelling, is there any evidence that applying ice packs
2: is useful? Not sure about that. I don't really uh, impress the need for ice packs too strongly upon patients. I think there's a. Um, there's a slight problem with using ice packs in that there's a risk of leaving them on too long, particularly when the scrotum's numb. You know, you can't get that feedback that it's uh, that it's freezing, and you may leave them on too long and cause damage to the skin. Um, you know, they relieve a bit of swelling and things like that, but I don't tell my patients to use them, and they do fine.
1: Yeah. Okay. Cool.
2: So, in terms of immediate
1: complications, we're talking about bleeding. What about infection?
2: Infection is similar. It's less than a one in five hundred risk. Um, I do the operation through what's called a no-scalpel method where there's a very small window made on the front of the scrotum to operate through, less than a couple of millimetres. It requires one dissolving stitch or sometimes not even a stitch to close. And uh, because it's such a small incision, so minimally traumatic, the risk of infection is really low. Yeah,
1: that's a really tiny incision that you make. I've had some patients comment that they they weren't even sure that they had an operation because they couldn't find where you went in.
2: The proof will be in the pudding a few months later when they uh, have unprotected sex and uh, see what happens.
1: So, yeah, just touching on that, are there going to be sperms around straight after the operation? What do you advise patients to do in terms of their contraception?
2: So, look, there's guaranteed to be sperm around immediately after the operation. We've divided and interrupted the flow of sperm from the testicles upwards, but there's a backlog of sperm that you've preloaded which require up to three months or more to wash out. So for the first few weeks, I tell people to expect to be fertile, and for that reason, for the first three months, you've got to use contraception still, either you know something from the female side or condoms, to let all that backlog wash out. There's a, an additional risk in the first three months while the body's healing that the tubes have a small chance of rejoining. At first three months, the failure rate's about 1 in 200, which is low, but not insignificant. So it's another reason for three months you've got to use condoms or something else until we do a test and show that you're clear.
1: One in 200, that seems quite high to me. Is there anything that you do to decrease the risk of that other than making them wait?
2: So, the procedure is very thorough in the intention to interrupt the passage of sperm. But, you know, the evidence is despite doing whatever you may do, there is this early risk. And it's because the body wants to heal and it wants to put the vas back together. It wants to make more babies. So, for that first three months, you've got to be careful. That one in 200 number is interesting because. That's sort of what we accept with other types of contraception. So like a tubal ligation where the female has her fallopian tubes clipped or tied, that's, that's kind of the long-term failure, rate. Right? That's about as good as it gets with that. And if you look at other things like uh, hormones and condoms, the risk is much, much higher, single-digit percentages.
1: Okay. So how many ejaculations or how long is it going to take to clear these sperms out on average?
2: We say 20 to 30 ejaculations over three months. I think that gives people something to, uh, to work towards and to, um, to keep them busy. Um, you still see some lingering dead sperm in the ejaculation after three months in maybe two out of 10 men. In those men, that may persist for a long time because they might have had a bit of sperm washed back into some of the ejaculatory ducts higher up that are quite complex and difficult for the sperm to drain out of. And what we do in those men is really just do another test to make sure the sperm are truly dead and then reassure them that the failure rate with lingering dead sperm is actually the same as if there were no sperm long-term.
1: Yeah, so you're looking at the motility of the sperm, and when they're dead, they're non-motile, aren't they? So they're not not moving or they're not beating their tails, they can't swim.
2: Exactly right. It sort of uh, indicates that they died a long time ago and they're lingering for reasons that are perhaps unclear, but the risk of pregnancy is low. So we can give what's called special clearance where we say, well, you've still got these, they may be there for a while, We know they don't make babies and we say that's uh, good enough.
1: So say you get someone who comes back after a couple of weeks and says, I've had 20 to 30 ejaculations. Is that okay to check then or you'd still advise them to wait the three months?
2: So the three months is for two reasons. It's not just to clear the backlog, it's also to allow the body to heal in a way that doesn't lead to a failure. So we've got to wait the three months, make sure things settle where we left them and then give clearance.
1: And are you happy with one clear sample? or you, you want them to have too?
2: This is a bit of a moving target in that the guidelines are changing. The American guidelines, which I think are very well-researched and evidence-based, say that one ejaculation sample at about three months is okay, as long as there's no live sperm, um, or very small numbers of dead sperm. In my personal practice, I like to do one more test in the patients who have small numbers of dead sperm because you know, there's a gap between doing the sample and taking it to the lab where potentially the sperm may have been alive when it came out of you and then died on the way. So, another sample reassures me that that's not happening. That's outside the guidelines, but it's what I do.
1: But one sample that shows zero sperm, complete what they call azospermia, that's okay to leave it at that.
2: At three months, that's fine. Okay. So,
1: we hear about long term complications. What do you warn patients about in terms of long-term complications and probably the one that m- most men fear is having chronic
2: pain. Absolutely. So we spend a bit of time talking about this because in my mind, this is, you know, apart from failure, probably one of the worst things that can happen um, after a vasectomy. Thankfully, the rates of chronic pain are really low. And chronic pain is very interesting because when we talk about chronic pain, what we're actually talking about is pain at three months after the procedure. That's when we can call it chronic pain. And um, I follow everyone up quite closely and ask them all the question directly at three months. Do you have any pain that's lingering on? And perhaps three percent of them say they do. So it's a it's a moderately high number. Although it does mean that ninety seven percent of people are getting away with no pain at all by three months. Of the three percent, um, breaking it down, asking them, well, you know, we asked you about this and you told us, but would you have brought it up on your own? Does it actually bother you? Do you actually want medicines for it? It's only one percent of my patients that actually, you know, have bothersome pain at three months. And those men get some medical uh, therapy, you know, some painkillers to to treat it. Over time, that number goes down. So if we follow them up a month later, half of those men are better. And if we follow them up a month again, another half are better. So they get they get better at a rate of about 50% per month. So the risk of long, long-term pain, which is what we sort of instinctively think about when we say chronic pain, is is extremely low. But it is absolutely a possibility. Now, is it specific to vasectomy? That's what I have a question mark about because I think, you know, I've seen patients with chronic pain, which is a large part of my practice is dealing with these patients and treating them. I've seen patients with chronic pain in the scrotum from from all sorts, from hernias, from other scrotal surgeries, from trauma, from infections, and a large portion, maybe 25 to 50% of patients who I meet, no cause at all. So, to say that vasectomy with a three percent absolute maximum risk at three months is a, a bigger cause of chronic pain than anything else, I think is is questionable. And there's some interesting evidence when they take healthy men who are presenting for a vasectomy and say, Well, you're here, we haven't done anything to you yet. Have you had any pain in the last year in the scrotum? About nine percent of people have. So there's a background rate of having discomfort in the scrotum which people experience and probably don't focus on. They dismiss, they go, Oh yeah, that's a bit weird. And they move on because they haven't had an operation. But after you've had an operation, you, you fix your attention on that and you, you sort of find a culprit and you have a cause and you, and you fixate. And um, I think that's part of why uh, it's more bothersome. Yeah.
1: So as long as they're counselled about it and reassuringly it is very rare and, um, you know, can be treated if it, if it comes up, is there anything in your technique you think that decreases the risk of chronic pain? Is any of it technique-dependent?
2: Gosh, this is getting very controversial because there's no evidence that something is better than something else in terms of um, chronic pain with vasectomies. You know, the way I do it is aim to reduce the risk of chronic pain. A lot of that is is based around trying to reduce the risk of pain at the time or pain immediately after the vasectomy. So, having it done with good anesthetic coverage, whether it's local or general, and then recovering in a way that doesn't trigger pain. So, not doing anything too soon, taking regular painkillers, and really looking after yourself. That decreases your risk of having pain in the first couple of weeks. And I think if you haven't had pain in the first you know couple of weeks or your pain settles down over the first few weeks, then it's much less likely you're going to end up with long-term pain. A lot of patients who I see who've had chronic pain after a vasectomy from from elsewhere or, or wherever I see them from, um, have had a really bad time with their vasectomy. A large portion of them have had a traumatic experience, usually under local anesthetic where they felt pain during or after the vasectomy or had some complication because they returned to work too quickly or similar
1: yeah that does seem to be a component in chronic pain generation is that there's been some event which has really fired up the pain fibers to to some degree and and then they've developed chronic
2: pain as an ongoing problem after that i think controlling as much as we control as much as we can control is important and uh, you know that is the operative experience that is the post operative experience and From there, I think there's an element of chance. Okay, I'm going to be controversial again.
1: Vasectomies can be done by GPs or specialists.
2: Who do you think should be doing them? Look, I wouldn't say that's controversial. I think um, vasectomies can be done by anyone who can do vasectomies well, right? So I think the majority of them are done by non-specialists, by general practitioners, and uh, the highest volume vasectomy practitioners probably do it very well. So I don't think there's a problem with that. I think they do it in a way which... uh, perhaps has limitations in the sense that they don't have access to a theater with anesthetic. So there's probably a push to do it under local anesthetic, which um, is not a good fit for everyone. So maybe there's a problem with doing it in everyone that way. But in terms of their technique and performance and the outcomes, I'm sure it's just fine.
1: Yeah, I think the take-home message would be to have it done by someone who's very experienced, who has good outcomes and can show that. And you have, you know, audited your outcomes and you've been away and – studied what has is considered a fairly straightforward procedure but you've taken it to the next level where you're doing quite a state of the art procedure and you've traveled overseas to watch uh, experts in their field do it so you know that's really what you have to do and you have to be scrutinize your own technique and and make sure that you follow up your patients and see what the outcomes
2: are i think that's very powerful to know your own results and to be able to tell people what your results are as opposed to worldwide literature i would encourage anyone who's thinking of having not just a vasectomy, but any surgery to ask their their surgeon, you know, what, what they can expect from their hands in terms of um, outcomes and, and failure rates and complications.
1: Yeah, because it's considered a fairly straightforward procedure, but it has very significant outcomes if not done correctly.
2: Absolutely. I think with these procedures that are perceived as being simple and completely safe, there's a risk of uh, falling into the trap of underestimating it and not respecting it and getting back into activity too early and causing complications and having a bad outcome so absolutely safe and simple if done in the right way and treated with respect in the post-operative period
1: so i think that just about wraps up the vasectomy podcast is there anything else we should have spoken about we didn't
2: mention um,
1: vasectomy reversal did
2: we No, that's a big topic, which uh, perhaps we can talk about another time. But to summarise, vasectomy reversal does work well. There's a 90% success rate if done within the first few years after a vasectomy. But what that means is there's a 10% failure rate. So it can't be relied upon. And vasectomy should absolutely be considered permanent.
1: Yeah, sounds like a great topic for a future podcast. There's going to be many
2: more to come. Thanks very much for coming along, Trent. Cheers, Andrew. It's been fun. We'll take off the training wheels next time and uh, make this coffee a double shot. (laughs) Sounds great.
0: Tackle Talk, a men's health podcast, is proudly supported by Perth Urology Clinic, Western Australia's largest urology practice. This podcast is for general informational purposes only and does not constitute the practice of medicine, nursing or other professional healthcare services, including the giving of medical advice. No doctor-patient relationship is formed by listening to this podcast. The use of this information and the materials that link to this podcast are at the user's own risk. The content on this podcast is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice. Anyone listening to this podcast with a medical condition should seek individual medical advice and should not use this podcast to delay treatment or disregard the information given to them by their health professional for treatment of their condition. The information used in this podcast should not be used as a substitute for expert medical opinion in any medico-legal proceedings.